You're listening to Season 7 of Bionic Planet, brought to you by VERA, the world's most widely followed environmental standard, and by Responsible Alpha, a collaborative, high-impact ESG consultancy helping investors, businesses, and communities transition to a low-carbon, sustainable, and equitable future. Companies around the world are scrambling to establish themselves as climate leaders. But what are the keys to actually becoming a legitimate corporate climate leader? I think the one key element is educated directors. Tim Mohan knows a thing or two about good corporate governance. He wrote Changing Business from the Inside Out, a treehugger's guide to working in corporations back in 2012 after decades in sustainability, first in government with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and then at companies like Intel, where he served as Director of Sustainable Development. He went on to head the Global Reporting Initiative, which administers the GRI standards for sustainability. And when I talked to the National Association of Corporate Directors, it was fairly clear that there aren't too many people that are qualified to be board directors that have any knowledge of ESG, specifically climate change. So finding the unicorn who is capable of sitting on a board and and have that fiduciary responsibility, as well as being knowledgeable about ESG, specifically climate change, but potentially other issues, It's really tough. Mm -hmm. When I spoke to the Directors Association, they were claiming that the costs of compliance will be quite a bit higher than predicted simply because the dearth of qualified individuals. And I thought, that's interesting. And if I wasn't so old, I'd be thinking, well, I have a job for a long time. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because I do think there's a lack of qualified people for these positions. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know its ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it, and nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we take a high-level look at the ESG movement. ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Corporate Governance Reporting, and it's an umbrella term for stuff I've been covering throughout the run of the show. Basically, all the data and info that investors use to evaluate corporate impacts on the outside world, or externalities. When I met today's guest, Tim Mohan, he was serving as Chief Sustainability Officer for ESG data provider Persephone. But he left that job a few weeks ago to focus on his consulting work, and I hope he also continues to produce his own excellent podcast, Sustainability Decoded, with Tim and Caitlin. I listened to a few episodes, and I learned a lot. They certainly succeed in doing what I try to do, namely breaking complex issues down for a mainstream audience. Not by leaving out the hard parts. Any monkey can do that. Most shows do. But he's framing them properly and bringing you deep enough into the weeds for you to actually learn a few things. His program, again, is Sustainability Decoded with Tim and Caitlin. And now I bring you half of that duo, Tim Mohan. So, Tim, why don't we start with Persephone? What is Persephone? Persephone is a startup. It's a new company. And what we do is create software for carbon accounting. That's kind of a mouthful, if you will. So it takes a little bit of explaining and some context. You know, I've been involved in the sustainability field for, gosh, over 30 years now. And that goes back to before we had the word sustainability, actually. 
And over those years, what's happened is the field has really gone into more of the mainstream. And now you're seeing a bunch of issues that were in that broad header of sustainability, like climate change, cross the threshold into the mainstream of financial disclosure. And so we're starting to see regulations come out from the Securities and Exchange Commission and other regulators that are going to require carbon or greenhouse gas emissions to be disclosed in your financials. And so what Persephone does is does the hard work of accounting. Think of it like the turbo tax for greenhouse gas emissions. You know, the tax code is thousands of pages. It's really hard to understand. But if you use turbo tax and you enter some information about your finances, it'll produce a tax return. It's the same for greenhouse gas emissions, very complicated accounting rules. And what we do is we encode all of that and then we ingest the data from a corporate corporation or a financial firm, and we create the greenhouse gas footprint that then can be used to disclose to the SEC or other regulators. It sounds so simple when you say it, but I've been in this space for a while as well, not as long as you, but long enough to know that it hasn't always been easy to get the carbon info. Um, I mean, where do you get it? How do you calculate it? And has it gotten easier in the past few years? You're so right. It's not an easy task at all. And, uh, you know, I often say that greenhouse gas accounting is more complicated than financial accounting. And it is. Mm -hmm. You know, there's 1,800 pages of the greenhouse gas protocol. But just to step back a minute, Steve, it's, it's really important that our listeners understand the difference between accounting and disclosure. Accounting is the hard work of actually figuring out how much greenhouse gas impact your company has. Disclosure is just reporting it to somebody. That's pretty simple. So the accounting is the hard part, and that's the part that, that we automate. So think of it this way. Carbon is a data problem. There's nobody following you around in your car or following around your plane when you're flying with an emissions monitor saying, well, this is the amount of greenhouse gas he emitted that day from transportation. No, it's a data problem right? It's a calculation. It's an estimate. And when you expand that little example I used to all of the transactions that a corporation does or an investment house does on a daily basis, what you need to do is then take those rules, those accounting rules, the calculation formulas, the emission factors, and apply it to those transactions so that then you can estimate the greenhouse gas impact. Surprisingly, all that work up until now has been done on spreadsheets, even for the most advanced companies, they do this work on spreadsheets. And so what Persephone does is automate that entire process, which is absolutely essential for companies that are now going to have to disclose this as a matter of regulatory compliance. And it's going to have to go through audit and assurance and there's liability associated. All of that stuff now is what's happening today. And that's why Persephone exists. Okay. So if I'm a company and I want to use Persephone, I would then take your software integrate it into my operations, and then everything is done in real time. Is that accurate? That is accurate. In fact, the term ERP will be familiar to some listeners. It's for enterprise resource planning, ERP. Those are things like familiar software packages might be SAP or Oracle, NetSuite, Concur, those kinds of platforms within companies basically run those transactions for companies and what we do is we sit alongside of those other ERP systems and we actually ingest the data from other ERP systems to calculate the greenhouse gas impacts. Might be good to go back in time right now a little bit. You mentioned that you've been in this space for 30 years and you mentioned the greenhouse gas protocol, which is about 25 years old. We've covered the greenhouse gas protocol on the show, but can you talk about how you got into this 30 years ago and remind us where the greenhouse gas protocol came from and how it grew up. Do you remember, for example, the first time you encountered the GHG protocol initiative? I do remember uh, the first time I encountered it. I, I can't claim involvement in it, <laughs> but but maybe sort of taking your first question, I I guess I was always kind of raised with environmental values. My dad used to take us camping and I was a kid during the first Earth Day. I remember it well. We were living in D.C. And, you know, I just had this notion that I wanted to work in environmental science to help improve environmental conditions. And let me just tell you, at that point in time, that was not a mainstream choice. It wasn't exactly the fast track to the C-suite, let's say. But I did it anyway. And now it's really grown up around us and has become quite a, a practice. Uh, just one little side story. And you know, I went to Duke University 
And at Duke, they had a program that I joined. It was the Duke University Forestry and Environmental Studies program. And if you do the acronym, it's called DOFUS. Uh, so we were, <laughs> <laughs> we were quite proud of the DUFI. Um, but now it's the School of the Environment. It has multi-million dollar endowments and so on. It's, it's really an indication of how this has grown. In terms of the greenhouse gas protocol itself, you know, as this field grew and we all became aware of climate change, there became a need to have a way to calculate it. It's like I said before, Steve, you just don't run around with monitors. It's very limited use case, maybe in oil and gas you do, but for everything else, it's a calculation and somebody had to do that. Unlike financial accounting, what happened here is a very well-meaning nonprofit, the World Resources Institute, WRI took this on and became sort of the global standard setter, if you will, for the accounting rules. And there's a lot of rules, like how do you deal with a subsidiary? You know, you have to know how much of that subsidiary you own. Uh, how do you deal with investments? You know, what's the greenhouse gas impact of an investment? All of these things had to be sorted out. So they partnered with a group called the World Business Council on Sustainable Development, WBCSD, and developed all those rules. And as you said, it's been going on now decades. The interesting part of that is that none of those groups are accountancy groups. So they're not the big four. They have several authoritative bodies that create accountancy standards. It's not the WRI's job to do that. Mm -hmm. And so you have sort of a mismatch between greenhouse gas accounting and financial accounting. And that is where we are today. We're trying to put those things together. And I think there's a bit of a culture clash that's going on. I think we'll loop back to that in a little bit, but you differentiate between accounting and disclosure. And I'm wondering if you talk about why disclosure is so important and what we're disclosing, meaning are we disclosing impacts or are we disclosing risks or both? Yeah, that's the right question, Steve. I think that um, if we take a step back, the theory of change behind disclosure is that, you know, they, they always say sunshine's the best disinfectant, right? If we only know what's going on, then we'll take action. Well, that, that makes sense. I mean, it, it's definitely helped in the past, but it's one theory of change. It's not the only theory of change. In Early in my career, I was a regulator. I worked at EPA. I worked at the U.S. Senate. You know, back in those days, we basically, if we wanted to reduce emissions, we passed a regulation or a law that required reducing emissions. <laughs> it was straightforward. Mm -hmm. Now you say, well, everybody should disclose that. And then magically, once we see those numbers, <laughs> we'll improve them. Well, sometimes that works. Sometimes that doesn't. The other part of your question that I think is very important is that it's not just numbers. In fact, you know, underneath the new SEC rule or proposed rule that's out there, you have the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. And sorry, I like to spell these things out. It's the TCFD. It's, a, it's sort of the global framework, if you will, for disclosing climate impacts. Of the 11 required disclosures in TCFD, eight of them are qualitative. They go to things like board governance and the systems and processes for evaluating risks and how companies have set climate change targets and how they're reviewing those targets, how executives are compensated based on all of this. Those are qualitative. And I've been talking to the Environmental Law Institute, the National Association of Corporate Directors, and I will say those qualitative disclosures have most of their attention because most companies haven't done these things. And mm -hmm. so it's going to require a whole sort of system change within companies. When I was at um, Ecosystem Marketplace, we had an initiative called Supply Change, which is similar to what FAIR is, is doing now. We looked not only at corporate commitments on deforestation, but also the follow through. And after a while, you could tell by the nature of the commitment what would be followed through on, or at least where, where progress would be reported. A lot of really dramatic commitments grabbed headlines but then disappeared, while a lot of boring commitments delivered results if they were time-bound, for example. So companies that, you know, say we're going to purge deforestation from our supply chains in a decade, they would quietly stop talking about their commitments when the news cycle changed. But companies that said we're going to have such and such a percent of oil palm certified by RSPO by 2018, such and such by 2019, 100% by 2020, they tended to either meet their targets or 
at least report where they failed and, and unfortunately get pilloried for doing that while those who didn't report anything just kind of slunk off into the woods. I'm wondering if anything similar is emerging in the 11 indicators that you just talked about. And are, are any of those indicators emerging as the most important or predictive as to which companies are actually going to take action? Or, or is it too early to tell? No, I don't think it's too early at all. And I've said this a lot. I think that the number one indicator of leadership and success is governance. Mm-hmm. And again, I go back to that, you know, sort of TCFD framework. And they specifically set out, you know, what's the highest level governance body in charge of climate change? And you have to disclose that. And then you have to disclose the qualifications of the people. And the reason I say that, Steve, is that I have some experience working in the private sector. I was 20 years in the high tech sector with Intel, with Apple, with AMD. Mm-hmm. In my experience at Intel, I was there about 12 years. We did establish a board subcommittee that oversaw climate change as well as other environmental, social, and governance issues, ESG issues. And by virtue of setting up such a structure, all of a sudden now you have the the need to feed. You know, you have to bring them information. They have to look at it. They have to ask questions. It creates a cycle of continuous improvement because there is a system with people in it that are, you know, being held accountable for those results. And I think because we're all just human beings trying to do our best, Mm -hmm. having that structure with the people, with the system, that's what makes things go. Maybe we can unpack that a little bit because you had this long period in Intel And as I perceive things, when Intel and Microsoft and other early movers got started, that was really from the inside out. And it really seemed to be driven by a few key leaders who wanted to do something right. Now you're getting companies that are being dragged in. And, uh, you know, we've always talked about the leaders and the laggards, but the laggards don't really want to be here. And many of them are positioning themselves as leaders, which I find a little bit infuriating. So I've got to, I guess... I guess I've got a two-part question. Can you talk about the challenges that Intel faced? And then what lessons from that transition can be applied to these newer companies that aren't exactly motivated by a desire to save the world, but are kind of like, oh my God, we've got to get in on this. (laughs) And that's exactly what I'm experiencing. I think you're spot on here, Steve, that the leaders should probably go into uh, the consulting business, you know, and set up a consulting <laughs> arm because everybody is going to need to know what they already learned in terms of setting up the, the systems that I mentioned before. I think the one key element is educated directors. And when I talked to the National Association of Corporate Directors, it was fairly clear that there aren't too many people that are qualified to be board directors that have any knowledge of ESG, specifically climate change. And as we were discussing earlier, it's quite complex. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been working in this decades and still feel like there's parts of it I don't know. And so finding the unicorn who is capable of sitting on a board and, and have that fiduciary responsibility, as well as being knowledgeable about ESG, specifically climate change, but potentially other issues, is really tough. Mm-hmm and takes time and education and, and so on. Um, and especially when you're trying to balance things like board diversity, that can be really, really tough. And so when I spoke to the Directors Association, they were claiming that the costs of compliance with the SEC rule will be quite a bit higher than predicted simply because the dearth of qualified individuals. And I thought, that's interesting. And if I wasn't so old, I'd be thinking, well, I have a job for a long time. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) because I do think there's a lack of qualified people for these positions. You know, I haven't mentioned the SEC disclosure requirement. Um, Can you expand on that a bit? Sure. On March 21st of this year, 2022, the SEC issued a proposed regulation that weighed in over 500 pages. And it essentially followed what I mentioned before, the, the TCFD framework. Uh, which has 11 specific disclosures that are mostly qualitative, but but some quantitative as well, scope one, scope two, scope three emissions, et cetera. Uh, it also required that large companies would go first and then it would be phased into the smaller ones. And finally, it had a requirement to have this information incorporated into the 10K 
the, the financial filings and assured by a qualified third party. Those last two things are actually quite different than the way things are done now. You're probably familiar with this, Steve, but for many, many years, companies have been voluntarily disclosing their ESG progress in things called sustainability reports, which tend to be maybe six months after the end of the fiscal year. They're often heavily uh, weighted with marketing materials, you know, pretty pictures, children planting trees, et cetera. And they're not exactly sort of the just the facts 10K disclosure that has to be audited, assured, and carries enforcement liability. So that's the big change. This proposal went forward because the SEC has been asking companies to disclose climate information for over 10 years. They issued their first guidance in 2010. And in that intervening 12 years, I guess, they've been pinging saying, look, we really mean it. We really mean it. This is material. <laughs> and, and very few companies, a handful of companies have actually incorporated climate risk into their financials. And the last thing I'll say on this is really the, the overarching need for such a regulation is coming from investors. Mm-hmm. If you follow BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, Larry Fink, he's the CEO of BlackRock, and he writes a letter to CEOs in their portfolio, which when you're running $10 trillion is all CEOs, mm-hmm. and basically said, look, we're serious. You know, Climate change, climate risk is financial risk. We need to know more about this. And finally, the regulators are catching up and saying the, the voluntary disclosures are sort of a dog's breakfast of information. It's hard to rely upon it. It's hard to use it for comparisons between companies. And so investors need better, higher quality information than what the voluntary market is producing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another interesting theme, how the whole move towards disclosures and now accounting has evolved over the years. In the early days, we wanted disclosure at the point of sale. So the impetus was on consumers. Then it was suppliers and supply chains. And only now are investors like BlackRock coming in. But the focus of these investors is often on risk and not on impact. So it's up to governments to make sure that negative impacts translate into financial risk. And that's led us to a feeling uh, came in a few years back that governments are now the laggards. I remember hearing from cocoa and palm oil executives back in 2015 that we needed more regulation. I think it seems counterintuitive to a lot of people that corporations were calling for more government intervention, but makes sense. The good ones want regulatory certainty and stuff like this. But how, how can we ensure that as governments come in, they're coming in the right way, not with a heavy hand and not on behalf of the few financiers who want regulatory cover if they check the right boxes? That is a central debate right now, Steve. I mean, you put your finger right on it. The European Union is, in fact, developing a, a similar regulatory package to the SEC proposal that we just discussed. And it's called the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting about this, and not a surprise to most of our listeners, is that the Europeans are ahead of where the U.S. is in terms of mm-hmm. the overall sort of sustainability values. And so this new directive coming out of Brussels will go further than the SEC. The SEC is really focused on the issues that are financially material, that those issues that an investor would need to make decisions about buying or selling a a particular equity. When you look at the Europeans, what they're saying is that's great, but we also want to know what a company's impacts are on the world. And companies should disclose that as a matter of law, not voluntarily, but as a matter of law. And so the Europeans are moving faster on this. It's called double materiality, not just material to finances, but material to people on the planet. And that's a big difference. Yeah. Can you expand on that? Because you you talked a lot about double materiality at City Week in London. And I first heard about double materiality from your last organization, the Global Reporting Initiative, when you were the boss there. Can, can you talk about double materiality, what it means, where it came from, and how it can be applied globally? It's a great question. I mean, when I was CEO of the Global Reporting Initiative, GRI, it's important to note that in the voluntary markets, GRI is the largest disclosure standard out there. So that just means that for most of the companies that are reporting sustainability information, they're going to use the GRI standards to report that. And just as another statistic, right now, we're showing that 
92% of the S&P 500 are doing that. They're voluntarily disclosing their sustainability information. Because it's voluntary, because it's sort of based on the court of public opinion, if you will, those companies that are disclosing this information are not just sort of stopping at the border of what's financially material to themselves. In fact, they're looking beyond that and saying, well, what's our impact around the world? And that's really an important distinction because those are the issues that really matter to you know most of us. I'll use an example. You know, when I worked at Apple, my job at Apple was to run their supplier responsibility program. And if you follow this area, you know that Apple was sort of in the headlines for a while for alleged poor working conditions in the supply chain. And that was my job to fix that, right? And if you ask yourself, were those poor working conditions material to Apple? And, and a, we're talking about a company that's valued over $2 trillion in market cap. You know, the answer is resounding no. Uh, it's a reputational issue. Uh, reputation can have financial impacts. Let's just get that out there. But if you just did the math on it, it's really hard to sort of move the needle on a, a $2 trillion market cap organization for, for these issues. And so it's really important that companies like Apple, who is a leader in the space now, and, and others look beyond just their own self-interest at the interests of people on the planet. And that's the extra materiality. That's correct. And that's what GRI does. And that's what the European Union is legislating and regulating on. And it's very different than what the SEC yep. is doing. And I'm wondering if we can revisit something you alluded to before, which is this issue of how we turn disclosure into something that's actionable, something that really drives change. Or are we already doing it and just have to do it more? Yeah, I think that's the operative question. You know, how do we actually get to our climate goals? I mean, all the data that we're seeing is that we're going the wrong way. Mm -hmm. More carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, higher temperatures on average each year. And then, you know, the actual emission numbers are also heading north. So you ask yourself, what's really going to turn that back? What's going to, you know, flatten the curve, if you will? Uh, I think disclosure is only one aspect of that. We talked about this earlier in terms of the theory of change. When you bring it to capital markets, the theory of change changes a little bit, where you're basically saying investors will start to align capital to sustainable business practices, which could happen, could be really important. In fact, I'll mention the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, or GFANS, also known as the world's worst acronym. Uh, is uh, for, it's <laughs> well, for, doofus was pretty <laughs> G fans. I don't know where they came up with this stuff, but it's, <laughs> it's 450 financial institutions brought BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, all the big guys. And they announced this in the COP26 meeting in Glasgow. So that's why the G is in there. And basically, they said um, all of our assets under management, which is over $130 trillion, are going to be net zero portfolios by 2050, which sounds great but I don't think any of them have any idea how that's going to happen. But it's an indication of how this theory of change could play out, where all the big investors, all the big asset managers are saying, we need to get to net zero by 2050. We said we would. How do we invest in the right businesses that will take us there? So there is some validity to it. But again, I think it's necessary, but not sufficient. When you look at some of the more pressing matters, I'll use methane as an example. Methane is, is a very potent greenhouse gas, over 80 times more potent than carbon dioxide alone. And we know where those sources are, and we know that technology exists to address those sources, and we just need to go get them. Uh, there was a, a big agreement in Glasgow that basically was to reduce methane. Yeah. If we just get methane reduced to the numbers in that agreement, it will be equivalent of taking all the cars in the world off the road. I mean, let's just go get that. You know, let's not monkey around with a lot of disclosure and, and that kind of stuff. Just go go reduce methane. Yeah, methane doesn't get the attention it should, although that's changing rapidly. Another issue is that we've got all these different initiatives and we have to make sure that everything is now comparable and aligned, which is what the International Sustainability Standards Board is is now trying to do, correct? That's their sort of push? That's right. It was really a, a long time coming, Steve, but I, I worked, as you know, in the GRI, and there's there's been this criticism of the whole disclosure space as being an alphabet soup mm -hmm. of abbreviations and acronyms, and, and I get that. 
you know, people are frustrated because they don't understand it and it sounds complex. The idea of the International Sustainability Standards Board is to harmonize all of those acronyms and abbreviations into one global standard, one global common language, if you will, for how we're going to express our greenhouse gas emissions. But it goes beyond that. It gets into other ESG factors as well. They're starting with climate change, but they're going to go further. And the other important thing to note about this new body that was just announced in November and still hasn't even elected its uh, board members is that it's an outgrowth of the International Financial Reporting Standards, or IFRS. Why is that important? So IFRS is used by 140 countries. There's less than 200 countries in the world. So most countries use the IFRS for their financial disclosures, right? So it is kind of the global common language, if you will, for financial disclosure. Now you add environmental social factors on top of that, and you say, well, instantly you have a global common language for those factors as well. And I think that could be really, really important. It could be an acceleration, a step function, if you will, in terms of efficiency and therefore effectiveness in disclosure of of sustainability issues. So far, we've talked about corporations and investors, but how do we deal with private investors like the Koch brothers or Koch Industries who spent more money on climate disinformation than Exxon or Chevron and maybe better than both combined. I'd have to double check that. There's a big concern, though, that as these public entities like BlackRock divest, these uh, unprincipled billionaires are going to just snatch up the dirty businesses and take them out of the public view. We saw that happen in Indonesia with uh, palm oil companies. And I'm wondering if it's a legitimate concern here, too. You know, it is a legitimate concern. It's kind of a balloon squeeze, if you will. If it's too hard in this one market, we'll go to this other market, right? Mm -hmm. And and I do think that that's a real concern. And I agree with you that eventually you have to resort to good old regulation to get after those emissions. Having said that, there's kind of a middle ground. In the private markets, a lot of the funding comes from private equity. And private equity investors include large pension funds, for example. Mm -hmm. And those pension funds have increasingly been vocal about the, let's say, environmental and social practices of the portfolio companies in private equity. And so there's pressure coming even in the private markets for some of the companies funded by private equity that, you know, really should start to get on this journey with the public companies. So, They're not kind of completely out of the picture because they're reliant on this capital that has these same sort of values behind it. It's just that they don't have the specific regulatory requirements of public companies. We'll get back to Tim in a second, but first, how do you like the job I'm doing? Is it good? I hope so. If you appreciate the work I'm doing and you want more and better episodes, you can help me deliver them by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash bionic planet. Bionic planet is all one word, no dots or dashes. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. Think of it like a magazine subscription, except instead of me telling you what I charge, you tell me what you think I'm worth. You can also help by giving me a solid five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. That matters because the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we must reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. We've talked about disclosure and carbon accounting broadly, and I wonder if we can shift back into Persephone. You're automating the whole process of carbon accounting, which feeds into disclosure, and I'm wondering how you hope companies are going to use what you push into the limelight. Yeah, I think that you know, just automating the process of understanding your carbon footprint is essential to just about all companies now. I mean, even if you don't think the SEC is going to be successful, you have to look at the broader trend lines here of investor pressure, regulations from foreign markets, 
the EU alone is the world's largest trading bloc. And when they regulate, they regulate not only businesses in the European Union, but anybody who does business in the European Union. So there's going to be 50,000 companies subject to their new rules. So you have to really look at this as a trend and the trend is coming. And so having an efficient automated system to understand and most importantly, manage your carbon impact is essential. And frankly, the other part of it is the auditing and assurance. I mean, one is understanding this really complex thing and then going through the calculations, but then having a third party come back in and go through all the calculations again, also very, very difficult and time-consuming and costly. What Persephone does is create a ledger that goes at a granular level, transaction by transaction, so that your Deloitte's or KPMG or EUI or PwC can come back through and look at each transaction, make sure it was done correctly according to the protocols and the calculation methods and the emission factors. So that is what we do and why it's uh, essential to companies. And, you know, frankly, in a, I've never done a startup before, Steve, so this is new to me. And it's just wild because when I joined just over a year ago, we were a small company and we've grown 10 fold in just over a year, tenfold. So you can imagine what that's like internally, you know, trying to get all the uh, systems and processes together within our company. But we're getting there and it's really fun. I don't have to imagine. I'm seeing it at Vera where I, you know, I've been helping them with media relations. They're also a sponsor of the show. So I've been working pretty closely with them. They're not a startup. They've been around for 15 years, but they were pretty small until recently. And now trying to go from 25 people up to about 180, it's, it's just hard to find people who can do the job. And I mean, that's the most difficult challenge right now. There's a lot of PhDs out there, a lot of people who have a theoretical understanding, but it's really difficult to find people who have the technical expertise to, to understand what Vera does. And I think what you do is just as complicated, if not more so. How are you dealing with that? Are you bringing people in and then training them up or just trying to find people who can do this or maybe poaching them? <laughs> a bit of all of those things. And it is quite interesting because uh, let's just say ESG is a hot employment market right now. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot of competition for talent. And what we're finding is that being a startup is actually a, a net positive for finding talent. People not only see the growth potential that could be a win-win, they also want to work for a company that's sort of purpose-built to make a difference. Yeah. And that's fantastic. And then the third thing I'll say, and I have really experienced this and, and love this part, which is building a culture. And if, if you've ever joined an existing institution that's been around for a while, you realize that human nature is to blend to whatever they're doing. You don't get to change it. You get to become part of it. Here, we're creating that from the ground up. We have our operating principles and our values, and those are all new. And we get to really build that. For example, this week, we had a day off on Tuesday because it's the International Day of Awareness for Homophobia and Transphobia. Now, what other company do you know of that takes that day off? Well, we do, because that's part of our culture. You know, I've, I've never seen climate and environment as left-wing, right-wing, liberal, or conservative. But so many environmental values do seem to come bundled with social values. And I'm wondering if you're seeing a bifurcation of people within the business community where progressive social approaches aren't always embraced. Uh, you know, I'm wondering if that's, I guess I'm wondering if that's preventing them from getting on board with the climate issues, as well as climate becoming as it needs to be more universal, regardless of your social values or, or is that off topic, which is fine. I tangentialize. No, I think it's totally on topic. I mean, you're touching on a very important issue here, Steve, which is, I call it brands taking stands, you know, because ultimately, and I, one of the most controversial statements I made in my book, Changing Business from the Inside Out, was business is the dominant social institution of our time. And people say, oh, no, it's not. And I say, well, look, you know, my former company is, you know, got a market cap bigger than most countries' GDPs. Mm -hmm. Supply chains stretch around the world. Decisions made in corporate C-suites can affect a huge number of people around the world. You know, so jurisdictional issues are not a concern because we live in a globalized economy. 
And that is really a very big responsibility. And when you overlay that with the social and environmental and geopolitical issues of the day, companies all of the sudden have this massive new set of issues they've got to deal with. Uh, And I'll go out on the skinny end of the limb here. The Supreme Court leak on abortion rights in the United States Mm -hmm. is really stressing out a lot of companies. And some of them, like Amazon, uh, I think Starbucks, I I might have that wrong, but definitely Amazon said that they would fund any employees that needed to travel out of state for those banned services. And they've already said that. You know, my company, Persephone, has already said that. We will fund uh, travel. So this is the kind of thing that companies are being asked to do increasingly over and over again, is to take stands on particularly sensitive issues that will split employees, customers, communities. And, you know, they just have to do it because they're being forced to do that because they have this kind of standing in today's society. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where they align in the coming years. Um, Going back to the core issue of today's conversation, you've got this corporate accounting and you need to make sure that it translates into action. And there's two kinds of action. There's what you can reduce internally now, and then there's what cannot be reduced internally now. And then there's what you can reduce outside your supply chain. And then there's how to get to net zero by 2050. So I guess there's four kinds of action, actually a lot more, but those are the ones we're talking about. And they all fit together because we have to reduce as quickly as possible across the board now to get to net zero. And that's the point where we've eliminated all the emissions we can eliminate and are only using offsets to remove carbon from the atmosphere. I'm wondering if you have a view on the role of using offsets now to accelerate emission reductions. My own views are are well known to anyone who hears the show, but I want to contextualize a bit by pointing out that uh, attendees at the event that we met at, at City Week, were were pretty evenly split between what I consider two extremes. Uh, It seemed like half the people were trying to completely dismiss carbon offsetting, and the others overestimated the role that offsetting could play. It seemed like a lot of these people were coming in with either a completely negative view of offsets or seeing offsetting as a panacea, which is not what it should be. I'm wondering where you stand on the role of offsets in getting to net zero and also the discussion around them. Yeah, so offsets are controversial because companies use offsets to basically continue emitting or growing their emissions of greenhouse gases. That's why people get excited about this and sort of take sides and have these kind of zero-sum game arguments. I like to look at it as a bigger picture, right? If you think about an analogy here, you know, when it comes to waste, there was the old reduce, reuse, recycle paradigm. And it was a hierarchy. The first thing you should do is use less stuff so you don't waste as much. And then, you know, reuse the stuff you do buy. And then finally, when you have to throw something away, recycle it. You know, don't throw it away. So we want to minimize your know, stuff going to the landfill. It's the same with greenhouse gases, right? So we know reality is that you probably have a car. I have a car. You probably turn the lights on your house. I turn the lights on my house, right? We, we know that we have a carbon footprint. That, that is what where today is. And we have to deal with that reality while we hope to head towards this sort of carbon neutral future, this low carbon economy. It's going to take time and it affects every sector of the economy. And some of those sectors, we don't want to have huge economic dislocations where assets are stranded because we put all this capital investment in and we can't get any return out because the market shifted too quickly. So we have to really look at a glide path. And offsets are a really important part of that glide path. And the other thing to say about offsets is that they're essentially a transfer of wealth for the company that needs to continue to do business. And that business has a carbon impact. They're going to transfer some wealth to a place in the world where, you know, we're sequestering or reducing carbon in some way. And that's wonderful, but you have to just really take that into account. It is a transfer of wealth. And then the third thing to say is because it's a transfer of wealth, there is a need for more credibility and assurability in the kind of offsets that are out there. Offsets have gotten a bad name because 
In some cases, the carbon benefits are stuff that would have happened anyway. They're not additional to reducing carbon. They don't reduce carbon any more than what would have happened. So it's one of those sort of things that needs a little bit of structure and regulation behind it before we can just say that, you know, it's the tool everybody should use. It will be used. It needs a little bit of, let's say, foundation underneath it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd I'd argue the foundation is stronger than a lot of people say, but additionality exists along a spectrum, which is a uh, a whole other discussion. The the real issue to me is claims and what companies are doing more broadly. And there's there's an interesting backstory going back to 2016 or 2017 at um, Ecosystem Marketplace. We did an analysis of corporate buyers of carbon offsets and how they use their how they use their offsets. And one of the interesting things we found, or at least Allie Goldstein, she did that project, found was that companies that voluntarily bought carbon offsets were also more likely to have broader emission reduction strategies that emphasized internal reductions. I interviewed a few executives at the time who said they initially thought they could just offset everything, but once they started on that route, um, the first step was to account for everything. And yeah, this goes back to what we talked about before. Once they saw their emissions, they realized, oh my God, they're higher than we realize. There's a million places to cut without offsetting. So that brings us back to disclosure driving change, which is which it kind of does, but doesn't always. Um, and there's another I- issue, which is that you start by hitting the low-hanging fruit. You start any endeavor by, by going for the low-hanging fruit. And a lot of the offsets that accelerate reductions now are funding low-hanging fruit. And when that's gone, then the hard part comes along. Exactly. Yeah. And that scares me because offsetting is kind of like the spoonful of sugar. And as, as we get into hard-to-abate activities, the cost of abatement is going to force the laggards to make internal reductions, which is good, but it's also going to drive up the price of everything, which is bad. I, I wonder if you've given any thought to how we can muscle through this from a communications perspective, because we keep running into this problem that climate solutions force us to bite the bullet now, and that keeps putting heat on the solutions rather than the problem. You know, I, I think that you and I have been around for a while and probably have seen those kinds of uh, scenarios that you laid out happen. I think we're in one right now. So it's a really, really good question that you're asking. I write a weekly newsletter and my newsletter, I sort of have been covering that in these really politically uncertain times with inflation skyrocketing, the cost of oil and gas through the roof, which basically, you know, as I mentioned before, the economy still runs on fossil fuel, whether we like it or not. And that's pushing up the prices of everything. And then we have war in Ukraine, which is causing a lot of this, but also creating a lot of instability. You know, all of a sudden, the issue of climate change is no longer on the top of everybody's list because there are much more sort of short term concerns that are basically affecting everybody right now. Yeah, that happens. Right. We can't ignore it. And the way I like to look at it is if you're if you've looked at any trend line, the actual line goes up and down whereas the overall trend is in one direction, you know, up and to the right, let's say. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happening now, right? So with the cost of oil and gas being up so much, the Biden administration has turned around and reopened oil and gas leases, opened the strategic reserve, tried to do many things to encourage oil and gas production to bring the prices down. And I understand that, you know, I understand that. They still have the long-term goal, but in the short term, we have to address inflation. I think that's going to continue to happen throughout the global economy. But hopefully we stay focused on that long-term goal, and we must. It didn't happen overnight to get us to where we are with climate change, and the solution won't happen overnight either. And I think that we have to stay focused, but also stay patient. And when it comes to companies, you know, the example used about fleets is a great example. Cars, trucks, buses, they have a useful life. And over time, as you replace your fleet, you want to go towards either a more fuel efficient or alternative fuel vehicle. And that's what companies are doing. I think Amazon put in a 100,000 electric vehicle order for their delivery vans. And they've had trouble because of supply chain concerns just getting that. (laughs) But, you know, it's an example of how you can do fleet turnovers for an asset that has a fairly long, useful life. That's going on throughout the economy and all kinds of businesses in every sector. I think those decisions, circumstances will dictate, but hopefully overall, companies will see 
the advantages, as you said, when you actually do the studies and you look at the impacts and you look at the costs, you see the advantages of moving to, in this case, alternative fuel vehicles. Yeah, yeah, and, and at at the same time, you mentioned the war in Ukraine. It's distracted from the climate issue, but it's also shown that countries can stick together if it's a, a tangible enough threat. Um, yeah, I've I've covered everything on my list, but I wonder if there's anything we didn't cover but should have. Yeah, I just want to pick up on one point. The last discussion we were having in terms of companies looking internally, as I mentioned, there's there's been a lot of sort of fear about the coming regulations and what's going to be required. But I worked at some of the most progressive companies in the high-tech sector. And I will tell you that when we did look at greenhouse gas impacts throughout the value chain, from supply chain to product, and I'll use an example, AMD, we thought that our biggest impact was actually coming from the supply chain. That was incorrect. It turned out that because we made a semiconductor chips that went into computers and other electronic devices that the electricity used by those products was by far and away the bigger part of the impact. Yeah, That changed our whole strategy. We started to look at how do we make more efficient semiconductors so that the ultimate products are more efficient from an energy consumption standpoint. And guess what? It was a win-win. The company had a, a goal of 25 times more energy efficiency per product by the year 2020. 25 by 20, and they made it. And because the clients, the customers wanted more energy efficient products, they made more money and the company was doing really, really well. So when you start looking at these things, you start to discover ways that you can be more efficient, more effective, and frankly, more profitable. And I think that's really important takeaway. So rather than meeting this with sort of the fear and loathing that I'm hearing from a lot of the establishment, look at it as an opportunity that you know, will really maybe create some new value for your business. That's Tim Mohan wrapping up this edition of Bionic Planet, brought to you by Vera, the world's most widely followed carbon standard, and by Responsible Alpha, a collaborative, high-impact ESG consultancy helping investors, businesses, and communities transition to a low-carbon, sustainable, and equitable future. Today's show was produced by Deborah Friedman, whose euphonious voice opened us up at the start. Next week, I'll be coming to you from year-end climate talks in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. But today, I'm still in Chicago. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.